Welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. Today's guest is Gary Kent. Gary has lived in the shadows of the corridors of Parliament for 35 years. From a Trotskyite team to a Labour moderniser, he's been on a profound political journey. And his work on the poll tax in Northern Ireland and in Iraq and Kurdistan have been, in some not unprofound ways, shaped this country's history. Gary is somewhat of a political mentor to me, and I have for a long time wanted to share his lessons and insights with people. This podcast was recorded in Gary's study slash shed, surrounded by his mountains of books, but unfortunately we were right next to a train line and the audio is less than perfect, so apologies for that. In this first part of this double episode, we talk primarily about the Troubles and Gary's work campaigning for peace in Northern Ireland. And before it starts, I want to get something off my chest. I was born in 1991. I was too young to remember Warrington, too young to remember Bishopsgate, too young to remember when the 171 bus en route to travel past my childhood home blew up. It blew up in Aldwych, as an IRA bomber's IED detonated prematurely. I was born too late to see and process the horrors of the conflict, but I grew up with an understanding of what a profound moment the Good Friday Agreement was. I understood what it meant to bring peace to a conflict that for years people saw no end to. At the end of this podcast, you hear my frustration at how little people care. Boris Johnson can bareface lie to the people of Northern Ireland. He said, over his dead body would there be a border down the Irish Sea with his Brexit deal. Yet his deal created exactly that. His deal tore at the stitches holding together a fragile peace. Yet nobody cared. And he won a landslide victory in mainland Britain for that Brexit deal. Jeremy Corbyn, on the other hand, spent decades of his career surrounded by and championing hardliners in the Irish Republican movement who rejected the compromises that would eventually bring peace. He did so much harm to the journey to today's peaceful settlement, yet nobody cares. You might say it is ignorance, but we're not ignorant about matters we care about, but about matters we think deeply about. Gary will outline in incredible detail the conflicts, the pressure and the hurdles he faced in fighting for compromise and fighting to bring two sides of a broken nation together. And I hope his overarching lessons can be learnt and utilised to help in other conflicts around the world. Here with me today is Gary Kent, a political activist and a parliamentary staffer who has worked in Parliament for nearly 35 years. 
Gary, thank you for having me. This is an interview being carried out in person, the first one of the season. So thank you for welcoming me to your home. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. The first question, basically, Gary, I wanted to get right to the beginning. You once told me that you became a Marxist at age 12. That's rather precocious. How did that come about? It was a long time back, and I don't really remember, but there was a boy in my class who was into communism and Marxism, and we started reading Marx together. And I, I have, even in this study, some of the sort of rather uh, difficult and arcane texts about the labor theory of value and so on that I got from that time. And quite how it happened, I don't know. I was interested in the news. And uh, I remember sort of um, getting the storm when Parliament there was uh, in existence produced a, a monthly bulletin. I remember these grainy black and white photographs of bodies being swept into, shoveled into bags. So that was one. Uh, I then subscribed to Soviet Weekly, which the Soviet embassy produced, and the Red Star, which the Chinese embassy produced. Um, if anyone from the Secret Services... <laughs> they probably know this already. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I have no idea, really. But, you know, I was, um, yeah, pretty interested. We had uh, students in our house. It was in Brighton, so it's, uh, uh, there were a lot of English language schools, and we had students from yeah, pretty much all over the world. And uh, I remember there was an Algerian called Amina, and she introduced me to what had happened in Chile, in 1973 and uh, so that was part of the radicalization too and uh, those connections with Iran for instance and other Middle East countries uh, came to be important later and then so when I was 17 so this is in 1976 I, I joined uh, the Labour Party and uh, I was uh, soon recruited to a secret revolutionary organization. They made it sound so exciting. I mean, we went to the pub, I had my half a mile, and they said, almost literally, Pists, want to join a secret revolutionary group? And I said, with all my maturity, well, I'll have to think about that. Oh, yes, okay. I may have to admit that the militant tendency, the Revolutionary Socialist League, was a fairly boring organization. I used to pay at 50p a week, uh, delivered papers on a, a windswept council estate in Hove. Uh, we controlled the Labour Party Young Socialists, and I remember sort of the big thing was a debate with the Maoists, who were strangely quite big in Brighton at the time. And um, I even remember I tried to sort of convince my fellow pupils at the, the local grammar school to, you know, of the merits of the militant's uh, view of life, because... The militant used to produce these very thick internal bulletins and um, I think they're called tasks and perspectives. And they were full of things like even the economist thinks, even the financial times thinks, as if they could trust the bourgeoisie on some things but hate them on others. Anyway, it was all full of facts. And uh, I remember uh, my, my history teacher saying to me once... Uh, Gary, just because Trotsky said it doesn't mean to say it's true. And I, I always remember that, and he was absolutely right. Uh, eventually, I went to university in the same town, and I'm still 
uh, a supporter of the militant. But I soon sort of saw through it and joined uh, an organisation called Cross 4, which uh, younger listeners may have to be reminded, uh, was essentially a youthful, a young tribunite group that came to spearhead the purge, uh, the challenge to, and then the purge of the militant tendency uh, from the Labour Party. So you used the term earlier that you were, your radicalisation or that you were radicalised. That has quite clear negative connotations for many people who'd be listening to this. Do you see yourself as someone who was radicalised or groomed into becoming a member of a sect or for you was it something quite casual and you know as a way to meet friends and go to the pub oh i wasn't i wasn't using it with any modern meaning i mean what sort of put me on the path to uh radical politics i i i see your point but i i wasn't sort of using it in that sense but um no it, in the end it was clear that uh, the militant tendency was a sect it was a cult and uh, you had to learn the line and uh, the line made some sense until we started to just pull it apart. Anyway, I started to do that uh, at university and uh, was very successful in the student movement in sort of challenging them and, uh, you know, and loosening their grip on the, the young socialists and on Labour students. Um, more important than that was I also joined the ILP. This is Independent Labour Publications. It was the descendant of the Independent Labour Party. But I rejoined the Labour Party in 1975. And I was in the ILP for decades. I was on the National Council. I was a full-time organiser for it at one point, a youth organiser. And I owe so much to the ILP because although they were... Uh, a Marxian organisation. Um, they they insisted that people had to be convinced of their own politics in order to be convincing to other people. So, for instance, in the 70s, we pioneered uh, the concept of one member, one vote in the Labour Party. Now, that is so normal now. But at that time, I mean, all sections of the left, hard left and soft left, thought that was a very bad idea because it would undermine their authority and their ability to get resolutions through. And the argument of the ILP, which I absolutely agree with, is that if you are unable to convince people in the Labour Party of radical measures, then how the hell are you going to convince the electorate? And uh, so that was an example of um, an organisation that was thinking things through and not taking things for granted and not learning the line by rote. I have to say that even then, um, I was pretty raw and rough around the edges. And I remember going to uh, an AGM in Scarborough and berating the leadership for failing to support troops out now and self-determination for the Irish people as a whole. And um, that was basically the standard line on the left the Labour left, along with Brexit. Well, we call it Brexit now, but it was uh, the campaign to withdraw from the common market, even after the referendum uh, was lost by those who wanted to get out of the common market. Support for unilateralism was seen as obvious. Um, some went to say that we should get out of NATO. And there was support for the AES. 
Now, the AES was big news then, and nobody really knows about it now, but it was the alternative economic strategy that Tony Benn and others, including Stuart Holland, who was actually one of my tutors at uh, university, had come up with, which is a, a, a sort of fairly um, self-contained socialism in one country, import controls, nationalization of the commanding heights of the economy. At the sort of program that sort of Corbyn then sort of brought back from the 70s uh, when he was the leader. And so this would have been in the late 70s, early 80s. Would you describe yourself as a Benite at that period? You, you talk ditched militant, yeah. still of of the left in the Labour Party. Well, yeah, Band and, and Kinnock um, uh, were, were heroes, and I, I, I have letters from them. I remember uh, we had... Uh, uh, Neil Kinnock come and address Sussex University Labour students. He was in up against Paul Foote. It was quite a debate, and um, but I think that the the sort of um, Benism uh, again to to go back to the ILP after the seventy nine defeat, uh, there was a lot of emphasis by what became the Rank and File Mobilising Committee, which was the umbrella body for most of the left groups. And then what we had to do to overcome the failures of uh, social democracy under Wilson and Callaghan was that we had to bring in greater accountability, automatic reselection. And we sort of disagreed with this program because um, you couldn't really sort of enforce radicalism on people who didn't believe it. And you had to, if you wanted a more radical Labour Party and more radical ministers, you really had to change the Labour Party from the grassroots up, not sort of through mechanisms that really didn't represent real change. And again, it comes back to, if you want radical change, you have to have quite a lot of support uh, to overcome the resistance to it. But, um, so no, I, I, was, I was, along with the ILP, increasingly critical of uh, Benism, and, and I'll say later about particular uh, conversations I had with him uh, over the years. But, I, yeah, as I say, I'd gone to university, I did international relations, uh, which is quite a big thing of what I do now. Um, but I was didn't do very well, sadly. I was too engaged in student politics. I was uh, very active in Knowles, the local Labour Party. And I did two terms as the... Um, full-time convener for the Sussex area in US, which is a great job to travel all over Sussex with my company car, uh, Aviva, and then a, a Cortina. Uh, these were the 70s and 80s. Uh, but after that, I became um, a British Rail trainee manager, uh, to my surprise. Um, and then um, a co-op education manager, actually in Croydon, uh, before being made redundant. And then becoming uh, involved, a manager of a, a homeless centre in Chelsea, one of which is actually mentioned in um, George Orwell's Down and Out in uh, London and Paris. And I was um, full-timer for the ILP, sociology lecturer in Harrogate. And then um, an old ILP colleague, comrade Harry Barnes, got elected in North East Derbyshire in, 90, in 87. And so I said, obviously gives us a job and he said no and uh, then that became well maybe six months and then it became permanent i remember we we did the deal we agreed this 
uh, on a picket of on El Salvador outside the American embassy in Grosvenor Square, as you do. And I'm sure uh, Jeremy Corbyn was there. And little did I know that uh, I was going to work with Harry for 18 years, so until 2005. And for those who are unaware, Harry Barnes was member of the Socialist Campaign Group. He was firmly on the Labour left in 1987, and he stayed in that position for the rest of his time in office. Is that is that correct? Well, to a degree. I mean, Harry uh, was an ILP, and uh, he was uh, very much in line with uh, a whole host of ILP positions. Uh, but he felt that as uh, an MP, he had to sort of work with other people. So he was actually in the Socialist Campaign Group and the Tribune Group, which was more powerful. And I remember he wrote an article saying, whoever put the fence between them is a bloody stupid place to put a fence. But he had to sort of have some sort of collegial existence. But as we'll see, especially on, on some issues, he was very much his own man, very thoughtful, uh, very thoughtful, decent, um, intellectually uh, credible person who and we didn't really have a great deal of time for some of the uh, stupidities of many members. Well, I'll speak for myself. I, I can't speak for Harry, but with some certainty about the matter, that we, we wouldn't have much time uh, for the stupidities of some members of the uh, the Socialist Campaign Group. So it was just um, a home um, a shelter from the storm uh, for him. But, I mean, I went to its meetings every now and then, but I thought they were pretty tedious. And um, so it wasn't really a big part of my life, uh, though we engaged with them on particular issues. I mean, but the um, the first thing is that, so again, I mean, I keep praising the ILP. I'm not a representative anymore or even a member, but... Um, I, I think that they were ahead of the game on something that was really big uh, in the late 80s, and that's the poll tax. And so that had been introduced in Scotland, which is essentially a guinea pig, and then was going to be introduced uh, after the election here. Um, the, the, I'm getting confused about the date. But anyway, it was it's Scotland first, and then uh, the rest of the country. And... The IOP sort of saw this as a really major challenge um, and, a, and an opportunity. So we established uh, London against the poll tax. I mean, and I helped with Harry and others set up groups all across the capital. And we organized demos and rallies. But what was significant and different was that we wanted to build a broad-based movement that included, but didn't completely rely on uh, civil disobedience, can't pay, won't pay. Because most people are not going to take that risk. And what the hard left liked about that particular maximalist um, position was that it helped to identify those who they could recruit. And, and you know, every organization wants to identify recruits. But I didn't think, we didn't think it was a good idea to... Uh, have a movement that was sort of so fetishized, uh, fetishized uh, that particular um, militant uh, tactic. And we, we'd actually urged the Labour Party to help build a broad movement uh, by, for instance, organising a big national demonstration under their banner. 
so that it wasn't uh, monopolized by the hard left. I remember seeing um, uh, Claire Shaw, David Blunkett, Robin Cook. He was a big racing man, and uh, the date we'd identified, April the 8th from memory, was uh, the Grand National. So I said, ah, the Grand National demonstration, you could call it. So, but unfortunately, um, the leadership was perhaps understandably uh, cautious and didn't uh, take it up. And and the hard left did come to monopolize it. And uh, we saw that when, uh, you know, actually the moves had become active in England as opposed to Scotland. And oddly enough, I mean, I shared an office with the researchers and secretaries who worked for the militant MPs, which was odd given that I was for them an apostate who had uh, moved on from being a member of this secret organization. And, um, but they, they sort of lost control. There was the big riot in Trafalgar Square. And um, that for many now is remembered as being, oh, it was the riot that got rid of Mrs. Thatcher. But it wasn't. It was all the other activity that had been going on for a long time. So, for instance, there was a by-election, I think, in Kensington, and we set up West Enders against the poll tax. And we got um, Dr. Legg, who was the, the character, the doctor from East Enders, to, to front this up. So there was a lot of this going on. I mean, all these groups doing all the usual range of activities. So the idea that the riot did it is just sloppy uh, history. But it does remind me that... Um, we then wanted to get to the bottom of what had happened. And I remember going to see uh, somebody from Liberty, which was then the National Council for Civil Liberties in Borough. And uh, we popped across the road to a bar and there was a young lawyer, Keir something, Kim Starmer, yes, yes, and uh, had a brief chat with him. I mean, but it, not because of anything. He, he didn't like it or anything. It didn't come to anything. I can't quite remember why. Uh, the evidence that we actually did collect is contained in a book called Riot uh, by Ian Hernard, who is a very, very well-known uh, parliamentary uh, journalist and writer. But um, what I'd also picked up from this was uh, how nasty, you know, some parts of the left can really be. And um, so we had a rally it was on the same day or the day after the Tiananmen Square uh, demonstration in uh, Beijing was suppressed. And I made some reference to, you know, the need to fight for the right to vote and how the poll tax was going to deter people uh, from the electoral register, which it did too. And I take, I met my wife outside, my wife-to-be, we've just met a week before, and uh these Stalinists sort of said, oh, you've been reading the bourgeois papers too much. It's not like that in China of all this nonsense. The anarchists inside have been uh, shouted at me. I have no idea why. And and so this, to her, was completely new. What the hell is going on? Why do they hate you so much? It was only a few people. And um, to, to me, I mean, if I'm honest, I think that this was just like uh, Wolfram of a Duck's back. I'd already seen what the left in the student movement was like. And uh, there's more. I mean, it just always goes on like that. It's one of those things that there seems to be a, a, a thread in the attitude of the ILP, which which 
kind of runs deep in your politics and which is an idealistic belief in pluralism when previously you said that the hard left were vehemently against one member one vote because that weakened their ability to stitch up certain votes to get their people in the room to work the procedures so well and similarly with the poll tanks it was seen that by these revolutionary groups as a way to find new recruits at the end of the day it was it was a cynical way of viewing it it was to hijack these campaigns to recruit new members when and they might earnestly believe in the cause of ending the poll tax as well but for yourself and the ilp it was actually about the cause and about persuading people to back the cause not there was a and a much more pluralistic attitude does that make sense oh it does yeah i mean i think that uh, a lot of the problems with the hard left go back to their reading of uh, Leon Trotsky's transitional program and the task of the Fourth International in 1938, which I studied in the Militant Tendency. I remember we had a meeting, uh, the ING, what it is and how to fight it. Again, for younger listeners, the ING was the International Marxist Group, and this is another competing Trotskyist group. And what I, I, I remember is from this is the phrase, something along the lines of... Uh, if it weren't for the right-wing uh, bureaucratic leadership of the labor movement, then the masses would again and again, the multi-million masses would again and again be on the road to revolution. So what, what's happening here is, um, and this is Lenin's vanguardism really, it's the idea that if you, if you look at the Bolshevik revolution, I mean, the, the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, when it was founded in I don't know, 1900, 1900, whenever, I mean, there weren't that many people. And within 20 years, they'd actually carried out a coup and captured the biggest country in the world. I mean, civil war ensued and so on. But uh, so it was this idea that a vanguard could, uh, in moments of rupture, exercise huge power. So for them, the importance of building that vanguard is essential. Now, we, we uh, didn't want that sort of revolution and, you know, we wanted uh, radical change. I say the we, I'm, I'm talking about myself, really. I, I don't want to pretend to speak for the ILP. That would be wrong. But anyway, my thinking was that, um, uh, you know, you had to sort of build an informed, uh, politically conscious and broad movement. I mean, not everybody's going to sign up to everything you want, but at least they start to see the world in a different way and to become more active. And we wanted to defeat the poll tax because it was a monstrous uh, thing that uh, was absolutely wrong in principle uh, and um, was going to was set to damage the electoral uh, register and, and to, be, uh, to give Harry his credit. He had seen that right from the beginning. And in the end, he had the chops and the detailed knowledge of the system through a private member's bill to reshape the electoral system. In fact, the, the system we have now, the role of register, is his system. So that's quite a big thing to have done and to have learned from the uh, the poll tax movement. But 
And then the other thing that sort of um, Harry and I had picked up from the ILP was I mentioned that it, I was all sort of, oh, why aren't we in favour of troops out? And this was sort of where much of the left was in the 70s. And, and just for listeners who might not be aware, troops out is British troops out of Northern Ireland. Yes, yes sorry. Because there was... Um, before British troops entered Northern Ireland, there was sectarian warfare on the street, street by street fighting. If you could, if you, you as an expert, yeah. if you could explain the situation on Northern Ireland in the 60s and 70s, and then the mainstream position on on the left. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so uh, I mean, the partition um, occurred in 1921, uh, so. Ireland was united, but within the United Kingdom. Uh, the results of the Easter Uprising in 1916 and the uh, the activities of uh, Michael Collins led to a treaty with Lloyd George that essentially divided Ireland into Northern Ireland. Or, uh, and people would say, well, it was actually only the six of the nine counties of the historic province of Ulster it was gerrymandered to make sure that there was a Protestant majority in Northern Ireland and the 26 counties of uh, uh, the Free State, as it was then called, and uh, what is now uh, the Irish Republic. So, um, and then, there's a lot of history. If you see behind me, there's a whole mountain of books uh, on Ireland. To cut a very long story short, uh, it is fair to say that... Uh, Catholics were systematically discriminated against in jobs and housing and voting rights. Uh, they didn't have equal voting rights. And uh, the Unionist ascendancy monopolized political power. Come the 60s, uh, this was challenged. Uh, you have to remember that the 60s was a time when civil rights in America... And elsewhere, you had the uh, the events, Les Evénements in Paris in 1968. So there, there was a challenge to the old authority, and there was civil rights marches. The Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association was brought together Catholics and Protestants. And, um, you know, the, the, the B-Specials, who were an auxiliary part of uh, the, uh, the police service, I mean, we're basically beating protesters, uh, very famously at Berntollet on the 5th of October 1968. So there was a sense that um, the Protestant Parliament for Protestant People, as Curlin uh, uh, had called it in the 20s, I think, um, it was incapable of reform. And in 1971, uh, the British state, Sandra Edward Heath, um, a suspended storm, uh, scrapped it and brought in direct rule. Uh, but this was after uh, the situation where there were pogroms and people were being burnt out of their houses in Belfast. And uh, it was actually Roy Hattersley uh, who ordered the uh, dispatch of British troops uh, in what was known as Operation Bala, which was the single longest British army operation ever because it lasted from 69 until um, into the 90s, maybe longer. So British troops were sent to keep the war in uh, parties par and were welcomed initially by many Catholics. 
But you see, what had happened is that um, there, there, there have been repeated uh, incarnations of the IRA. Uh, I mean, for instance, they were active during the Second World War. Um, yeah, they were bombed by them in London. Uh, they they were sort of chummy with the Germans, and one of their chiefs of staff, Shaw Russell, was taken by uh, a German submarine to Ireland. I mean, enemy's enemy is your friend. Uh, it's part of that. Uh, they were active in what was known as the Border Campaign, 56 to 63, I think. I mean, I know one or two people who I mentioned later who were active and arrested, and they were interned. Uh, then... Basically, the best book about the Troubles is by Malachi O'Doherty. I think The Trouble with Guns is what it's called. And he describes how the new um, incarnation of the IRA, which grew up from the late 60s, despite the success of reform, because all, all the various things, uh, lack of voted, lack of, lack of equality in jobs and housing and in, employment, were actually stopped. Um, in about 71 too. But nonetheless, this new organisation, which was the result of a split between the, the old IRA, the official IRA, and they became the provisional IRA, got a life of its own. It sort of got a momentum. And um, it, then there was internment in 1971. And, and this this might be might be wrong, but was the... The official IRA stance of that there would need to be unity between the working class of the North, be them Catholic and Protestant, before there could be reunification. And the provisionals were more hardline in that actually the Northern Ireland state could be dissolved once the British were kind of fought off. Actually, the the unionist control would crumble if the British were troops left, and it was more explicitly not a defensive battle. We're going to take the fight to the British. Was that the split between the provisional and the essentially? Essentially, I mean, it became clearer as the seventies went on. I mean, the the official IRA was still engaging in um, armed struggle, um, and in fact, I think carried out the Aldershot bombing. Uh, and I think that would have been 73. But as the 70s wore on, essentially the divide between the officials who uh, had a ceasefire and then uh, embraced class politics uh, and the idea, as you say, that um, you had to have working class unity, which echoes back to Wolf Tone and the United Irishmen in the 18th century who wanted to... Uh, bring together Catholics, Protestants, and dissenters. Uh, so, yes, there was that divide. And, I mean, how this connected was, I mean, I'd sort of, as a teenager, sort of, um, I'd hate to say it, but, you know, had a sneaking regard for the IRA. Um, but I was entirely wrong. And I then, yeah, had a support for the Troops Out movement, Um but I think that their logic was, you're right, uh, that of the provisionals as well, was that essentially they couldn't recognise that um, partition was not the cause of division. It was a reflection of already existing divisions. They couldn't quite get their heads around the idea that uh, unionists 
had anything but false consciousness. And they thought that uh, they could bomb their way into United Ireland and that uh, the Protestant Unionist population would understand that it was Irish and that the best way of getting this done, getting it over and done with, uh, as many very explicitly said, I remember somebody who's very well known now um, <clears throat> explaining it to, to me after the murder of Ari Neve by another Republican group, the INLA, that, well, you know, uh, the important thing was uh, we have to get it over and done with. And I question whether or not this was a wise thing to do. Wouldn't troops out now sort of create a backlash? He said, well, yeah, maybe, but we just have to get it over and done with. And given that we were in Brighton, I thought it was very easy to sort of fight to the last drop of someone else's blood. And that and that was in an English politician saying that? No, it wasn't a politician. It was uh, some, uh, somebody who had actually grew up, grew up, grown up in Northern Ireland. Okay. But... Um, you know, and that, you know, I questioned him. He was in the IMG, and he said, "Well, haven't you read Lenin's Imperialism?" As if that's the answer. I mean, you know, we can all sort of find all the quotes we like from Marx or Lenin or Gramsci or whatever. But as my history teacher said, just because they said it or because they wrote it at that time doesn't mean it's still true. And uh, I just didn't think it was much of an answer. So I started to question that, but. In the 70s, before I joined, I mean, uh, the ILP had been listening to these voices uh, from the Irish Dutch. You should understand that uh, the official IRA, Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, the Workers' Party, it, it, it actually grew and uh, became at one point uh, in the 90s uh, the Democratic left. And, but they were very important and small, but... Um, modern left group and in the Irish Parliament and they were part of the uh, government, uh, the Rainbow Coalition in 96. I, I remember I interviewed their leader uh, Pranchista Rossa in his ministerial car as it flew down the roads of Meath. I mean, I've never been driven so far in my life. But anyway, I meandered along. But there was essentially that difference and myself and Harry had separately sort of seen this and um, Bit by bit, we came to sort of develop a, a big interest in uh, Northern Ireland. And I remember sort of it must have been about 88 or 9, we'd fallen in with uh, a campaign against kneecapping in Belfast. And then in 1990, we helped form a cross-party Irish <coughs> peace group called New Dialogue on the day that John Major fell. And uh, then uh, we were sort of organising support for the peace train. Now, the peace train was a grassroots movement, including uh, people from the left and trade unionists, the unsung heroes of the troubles, in my view, in Northern Ireland. And they were protesting because the provisional IRA was either bombing or hoaxing uh, bombs on the line between Belfast and Dublin which is an odd thing for an organisation formerly committed to a united Ireland. And people had enough of this, so we ran they ran peace trains, uh, and hundreds of people joined this, and um, went to Belfast or went to uh, Dublin. And um, the peace train organisation then decided to do one from Belfast to Dublin to London. I was the organiser of the London Lake, uh, the then president of the Irish 
Republic, Mary Robinson was our main patron. And this is a big event that had a lot of uh, coverage and essentially sort of symbolized the fact that most Irish uh, organizations and people oppose the monstrous suggestion that the IRA represented them. And it, I think it delegitimized them. And it was a very powerful movement. And the, the peace movement uh, opposed the IRA and Armourists. <laughs> we picketed uh, Sinn Féin conferences. I remember Dublin and Dundalk. And here in London, we, we organized uh, vigils uh, for those who were murdered by the IRA. Um, now, in 92, it was the 20th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Now, Bloody Sunday was when 14 people were shot uh, by British paratroopers in Derry, Londonderry. And he became the sort of recruiting sergeant for the IRA uh, because it seemed for a lot of people to uh, illustrate that the British state was incapable of reform. It was only capable of brutality. And uh, I mean, people were understandably furious. And, and why shouldn't they be? I mean, it was a monstrous uh, act. Um, now, on the 20th anniversary, um, there was a demonstration in Islington and uh, our friend Jeremy Corbyn was a speaker. And what we wanted to say as a British peace movement was that, look, we, we, we were absolutely opposed to what had happened. And in fact, you know, uh, that year and I think the next year, uh, we had sort of pushed for John Major to say that those killed were uh, not guilty. And then uh, he later said they were innocent. And we pushed for what? For an inquiry, an historical inquiry. I mean, whether or not it came from us or was connected, there was a major inquiry which cost hundreds of millions and found that a British state was culpable. I uh, don't want to get into the detail of that. But what we were against was the idea that this horrific act was used to justify provisional IRA violence. So there were a couple of thousand of them. And there was a small group of us, and we stood by the side of the road in Islington, and we had placards that said, no more bloody Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, just to make the point that all this violence was absolutely illegitimate. So it seems now that most people would think back, if they were kind of the, of my generation, who were very young when the Good Friday Agreement were signed or were born after the Belfast Agreement, that this seemed quite obvious, an obvious position on the left to be anti-violence from either side. But that wasn't necessarily the case. What was the attitude towards provisional IRA violence among the the troops out or the kind of Benite left? What was the mainstream opinion? When, when the um, Provisional IRA bombed the Grand Hotel in Brighton in 1984, there was a furious argument in the pages of London uh, briefing, and it was a Brighton Labour briefing too. The councillor on the hard left, uh, who later became the chair of Troops Out Now, uh, I knew him uh, in Brighton, um, justified the bombing. Uh, the fury in briefing was because they had actually criticised it and then they had to apologise for criticising the bombing. 
And so there was uh, a large part of the hard left who were absolute, well, they were, they were divided between whether or not you should offer unconditional or uncritical support. There was a naive sort of uh, view that a provisional IRA could sort of help be a radical for, would, would be a radical force that somehow would make Northern Ireland a Cuba in the Atlantic or off the coast of uh, in the Irish Sea. I think there was a great deal of uh, naivety about uh, the provisional IRA and its radicalism. Um, then I think there was a, there were a lot of people in the Labour Party who still thought that um, partition was the root cause of the problem. And, and that was reflected in, in uh, the work of a man who was very principled, Kevin McNamara, I mean, uh, who'd been the Labour MP for in Hull since 1966, and helped to break the sort of silence on what was happening in Northern Ireland because of uh, arcane rules. The Parliament was banned from speaking, uh, from actually asking questions about what was happening in Northern Ireland. And come the... Um, 80s and into the 90s, he, he was sort of in charge of Labour's uh, policy. So you had the hard left, who essentially, in my view, supported the IRA, thought that troops out was important because it would undermine the willingness of Protestants to uh, resist, if you like. And um, not that I approved of the lawyers at all, um, but they, they thought that this would sort of melt the support for uh, the Northern Ireland state. And then you had lots of people who sort of just normally, routinely thought that, yeah, of course, I mean, a United Ireland is the solution or what you called earlier the reunification uh, of Northern, of Ireland. And Kevin, very decent principled man who was absolutely against the violence of the IRA, I wanted to be the last Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and was very proud of that ambition and had a plan for joint sovereignty. Now, in in the end, I mean, what what worried us is that um, the the idea that Labour could be a persuader for unity and that uh, we could sort of magic uh, a united island and that would solve the problems, I thought was a recipe for civil war because it underestimated uh, the... Uh, desire of many in the unionist community, and I have connected with them increasingly, uh, to, um, you know, they didn't want it. And, uh, you know, civil war was a real possibility. We, you know, I was listening to uh, the Irish left, and um, and th their view was more and more clearly that instead of um, driving a united island, whatever, and... Uh, under duress, that the priority was stabilizing uh, Northern Ireland, overcoming discrimination, setting up uh, devolved institutions and better cooperation with the South. And that led me, I think it was 94, to argue in Tribune, which was then quite a different newspaper, uh, much more broad left than it is now, that uh, Labour should not preempt the outcome uh, but be neutral about the possibility of a United Ireland. And that, that sort of formula was building on what John Major had agreed with the Irish uh, Taoiseach, Dick Spring at Labour, in 93, that uh, the UK 
should have no selfish strategic or economic interest in remaining in Northern Ireland. Uh, the trouble is with uh, this, I can't sort of show you that the importance of the fact that there are no commas in that phrase, because that was sort of misunderstood and distorted willfully by opponents and supporters of um, the agreement, because they wanted to say that, ah, so the British have no selfish interests. They have no economic interest. They have no strategic interests. They have no selfish economic and strategic interests. They, they run together. They have an interest in staying, but not forever, and not regardless of the will of the people of Northern Ireland. So there was a need for uh, the Labour Party to stop trying to say that the solution was a united Ireland, but to work for uh, uh, an internal settlement. And and then who knows where that goes? And that's still the situation. I have no idea where it's going to go. So I was the secretary of the ILP Socialist Committee on Ireland. We, we did lots of meetings, wrote letters and articles. And um, w with the help of the new statesman, um, I think we were making headway, though it seemed that the odds were very tough. And as I say, we also... Because, I mean, essentially, what happens with so many issues is that a position sort of becomes a matter of habit and inertia rather than conviction. And we were also talking, have been for some time, to the Unionists. I remember, I think it must have been about 96 or so. Um, we, we took, we, at very short notice, we organised a fringe meeting at the Labour Conference in Blackpool with the new statesman and David Trimble, who's then relatively a new leader, uh, was one of the speakers. And I remember sort of meeting him outside and walking behind him as he went through the uh, the exhibition area and people's jaws were dropping. I mean, they couldn't believe, what's that man doing here? But it was really essential uh, that we were neutral, that we had a good engagement with the unionists and the nationalists and and then, you know, we, we were sort of getting through this idea that we shouldn't sort of just go for a United Ireland, uh, that we have to have this stabilisation period before anything else. And and then anyway, some bloke called Tony Blair came along uh, in 94. So this is, I'm getting my dates a little wrong. But, um, and he threw all that stuff out the window. And uh, pretty soon, uh, Kevin McNamara was replaced by Mo Molum. And uh, who I loved to pieces. Uh, she was lovely, and she was very much more on our side. And and in fact, the first thing she ever did, the first meeting she did, was uh, in Middlesbrough, where our secretary, an old communist, uh, Bert Ward, uh, who founded the group A New Dialogue, uh, he lived there. And you know, they used to walk together along the sea. And um, yeah, so I mean. You know, it was quite important because all these things came together. So I think it's reasonable to say that if the peace movement, <laughs> all those pickets and vigils and challenging the loyalists and the, the IRA hadn't happened in quite an organized manner, uh, that if we hadn't delegitimized terrorist groups and if we hadn't, I think, put the skids under what, what I think we called the Junior Jane Connolly version of history, then the peace process under Labour for 97 
It would have been more difficult to deliver the Good Friday. Which is Mo Molin you know, famously visited loyalist prisoners. Uh, that would that would have never happened previously. Oh, I don't know. I, I, my uh, I mean, probably not. But um, yeah, I mean, Mo Mo had uh, balls, and uh, but Tony Blair and Jonathan Powell, you know, had uh, paid a lot of attention. And I remember Tony Blair had an Irish mother, Protestant, uh, and from the south, I think, and had um, visited Ireland many summers uh, during his youth. So he had a better understanding than most of uh, Northern Ireland. And um, I think the attention they paid was made a lot easier by the fact that, uh, putting it very crudely, I mean, there was a time when, you know, the hard left view of troops at now was, uh, it was always a minority view, but in this situation, there's always going to be a zealous minority for and a zealous minority against. The The crucial thing is to, to win the people in the middle. It seemed like an impossible task because it's so deeply embedded, the idea that United Ireland was the answer. But in the end, it crumbled. And it was right that it crumbled. I mean, people don't have to give up on the aspiration, but they have to give up on the idea that um, they can impose this because the irony is... Uh, as I found, is that the British left was often more nationalistic than the Irish left. It, yes, and that was something I was going to mention. It, it seemed like on this journey that you had, from being someone of the kind of classic Trotskyite kind of far-left position, your journey started by listening to other left-wing voices within Ireland, Workers' Party, of the official... IRA, orange Marxism, and various different ideas. And then Cathal Goulding kind of position was that was that where you first started to hear different ideas which were associated often in kind of the tanky left, uh, the Stalinist left kind of position of uniting the working class across Ireland. Was that where you, you first kind of your ears pricked up realised maybe there's a different path. And then, as things progressed, there was an appreciation and understanding that both sides of the com conflict had legitimate beliefs. And where you said previously that the idea that loyalists were just... By false consciousness felt united to an idea of being part of being British or the United Kingdom. And you realise that actually, no, those, those views, though you might disagree or agree with them personally, knew that they were legitimate and that that was the building block of people coming together. Was that how your journey went? It was listening to certain niche left-wing voices in Ireland and then listening to both sides of the conflict well in increasingly i mean i went there a, a, a great deal but you know the initial sort of voices uh you mentioned kathy Gordon. Uh, there were there were others i mean paul bew henry patterson uh wrote very important books um then there's uh a, this is even more niche there was a, a young danish sociologist called anders boserup 
who went to uh, Derry, I think, in 19, uh, late 60s, uh, early 70s. He's very young, and he wrote a critique of Catholic defenderism uh, and, and warned the left with a heavy Marxist view on this um, about do not get into bed with sectarian bodies. You know, what's needed here is a, a, a caste politics approach to it. And that essay was published uh, in uh, by the IOP, actually, as a pamphlet, and also appeared in, um, I think, the 1973 or two edition of Socialist Register, which was then edited by Ralph Miliband. Um, but the only thing that uh, Socialist Register, which you see is a few dozen of them up there, uh, has ever done on Northern Ireland. But, I mean, these things got through to me. And then, yeah, just go in there. In the 80s, we we then had... Uh, I mean, I'll tell you that we had a, an ILP delegation um, in, I think, 91. And I, I now look back and realise that this delegation, which was something like the 6th, 7th, 8th of April, uh, so we, we met, as an ILP, we met... Uh, all the parties, and but the the sort of highlight was um, we were going to meet Sinn Féin, a guy that went on to become Jerry Adams' uh, main press officer and uh, a councillor. Anyway, the couple, of, yeah, the day before, I'd given an interview to the political editor of the Irish News, and um, I'd sort of pretty much given the provisional both barrels and accused them of being hypocrites who were sort of uh, leftish in London and very conservative when raising money in America and said that, you know, we were against kneecapping and supported a peace movement and so on and so forth. Anyway, that appeared on the Saturday. I meant getting up and sort of had to go to a garage and looking it up and then we went to this meeting in Connolly House on the Andersonstown Road uh, I had actually gone to the wrong place first, and then we're in this other place, and there's a board on the uh, on the wall, Belfast Brigade IRA, and then lots of code. I have no idea, obviously, what it said. It's fairly clear that it wasn't for us to read. And uh, anyway, we went there, and we went into the front room, and the two of them were there with the copy of the Irish News, open at that page, saying, we've read this. Anyway, you know, we had quite a long engagement. And so that was really the moment that sort of made me more and more active and sort of, in the end, I mean, I spent about 20 years on it. When you were travelling and going on these delegations to Ireland, it sounds like you were meeting all sides of the, the conflict yeah. and, 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 and picking up. And yeah, it's one of those things that you often hear about Jerry Corbyn when he justifies his past as well. And I I listen to all sides of conflicts. Um, it'd be interesting to get your your, your views on that. Um, but you you struck up some friendships. Your friendship with Sean O'Callaghan is probably would you say the most profound relationship that you had someone so deeply involved in the conflict. Yeah, if you could talk about absolutely. That. And um, so. What happened there is I did devour a huge range of uh, literature 
uh, on Northern Ireland, including from the Workers' Party, from academics such as Paul Bew, who's down the Lords, and who was a very well-regarded professor of politics at Queen's University, who I know had taught people who went on to become very senior in uh, all parties. And, um, you know, I sort of went there quite a lot. So I was, by this time, uh, doing quite a bit of journalism. I, I'd done a, a, I was doing a regular column for Fortnite, which, of course, is a monthly magazine, uh, and essentially the, the equivalent of New Statesman. And uh, I was writing for the Irish Post, uh, the Irish News, anybody that would publish me, uh, frankly. And um, was also going quite frequently to um, meetings in uh, Ireland and uh, England of the British-Irish Interparliamentary Body. So I got to know a, a whole range of British and Irish politicians who were active on Northern Ireland, which is always a small number. And I remember one year I'd been, uh, there was a big conflict to Drum Creek, which was the Orange Order wanted to march down the Govaki Road or part of the Govaki Road, which was uh, a Catholic uh, district. And they were resisted by a community group, which was essentially connected to Sinn Féin. But there was a lot of anger on both sides. So one year, I was on the uh, Orange Order side as a journalist and sort of to understand what they were thinking. And um, another year I was uh, with the residents and stayed on the Kabaki Road or nearby with uh, uh, a Sinn Féin family. And um, on one of these trips um, with the writer Ruth Dudley Edwards, uh, we then went to McGabbery Prison and uh, to see Sean O'Callaghan, who I, I didn't know about, really. And Sean was then uh, in prison for uh, 539 years. Uh, he had spurred on by his family. His father was a Republican. He'd actually sort of built a bomb when he was 16 and blown up the garden shed and been jailed for that. Uh, but then after Bloody Sunday, um, he he murdered uh, a Catholic uh, special branch detective inspector, Peter Flanagan, I think, and very up close and personal, eight bullets in the head in a bar in Omar. And he'd also mortared uh, a base and a, a woman um, officer was killed. And um, he then realized that he the chief of staff had told him because this woman who died was pregnant that this was two for the price of one and it suddenly dropped that this was essentially a sectarian movement that he joined that they the chief of staff was referring to two protestants having been killed and uh he left the ira i think he came here set up a cleaning business and then later rejoined the IRA um, as an unpaid informer for both the Irish and British states. And um, he was then in prison. He'd given himself up. He got sentenced. He had tons of pretty big things. I mean, he says that he had alerted the authorities to a bomb he'd planted in the Dominion Theatre um, that Charles and Diana were going to go to 
to see a concert by um, quite a big band whose name I've forgotten, uh, Duran Duran. And uh, that he had also uh, alerted the authorities to um, the shipment from Boston of a huge load of uh, rifles and ammunition. And that was uh, stopped. It was a Marie Turan. And lots of people, very senior in the IRA, were arrested. So he had really, you know, he was the number two of the IRA in the South. Uh, he was a confidant of Martin McGillis and Jerry Adams. And um, he had really stuffed them from inside. Anyway, he was in prison and we talked. I was briefly his literary agent. I remember getting an article into the Independent. And then, you know, I think in 96, I got a call saying, I'm not in my usual place, because he'd received a royal pardon. Anyway, so we'd met up, had a nice meal together, and then pretty much for the next uh, 10 years or more, we were very close. Uh, and we were trying to advise uh, public opinion and, uh, and then Trimble about how to get the Good Friday Agreement and then how to implement the Good Friday Agreement. So we worked with David Trimble and his team um, for some considerable time. And so we we sort of spoke a lot, a few beers were had over uh, to journalists to try to educate them about what was happening. This is a very complex period of time, but it, it worked. And uh, I mean, Sean was... Um, you know, deeply troubled um, by the fact that he murdered these people. Um, and he was, I think, was very guilty. And, and you know, he, he was, uh, he hit the bottle. Now, in the later part of his life, I mean, um, he became involved in other things. He gave up the drinking, still smoked like a chimney. And... He knew that the IRA uh, would kill him. They had killed other people. And, you see, what was important is um, that how did the IRA sort of lose traction? I think there are several reasons. I mean, one was what what was called uh, SIGINT and HUMINT, which is uh, technology, the interception of messages. And uh, HUMINT is human intelligence or informers or touts as they're, they're called there. And there was a very senior IRA man, Big McFarlane, who said in, I think, the 80s that 80% of Belfast IRA's operations were intercepted and aborted because of this intelligence. And also, you see, at the beginning, the, the IRA was a senior partner to Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin was an also-ran. I mean, it was said, and I believe this is true, that the IRA and Sinn Féin are two sides of the same coin, inextricably linked. Uh, but the IRA was the senior partner. But then, more by accident, because of the hunger strikes in the early 80s, Sinn Féin became quite a powerful electoral machine. And then there were contradictions between uh, the IRA. See, if one side of your movement is blowing up businesses in Derry and the other side of the movement is trying to win votes in Derry, you have a problem. <laughs> and so I think that also the success for reform, I mean, you had 
more and more middle-class Catholics um, achieving senior positions in the, the civil service and the public sector in Northern Ireland. They, they had broken through the uh, glass ceiling. You had a very successful Social Democratic Labour Party under John Hume, um, which the IRA you know, sort of mocked as a stoop-down low party. Um, but they, they were very worried. And in fact, I mean, Sean told me, and I broke the story, it was quite a big story at the time, uh, how he and uh, Adams and a guy called Joe Carhill had discussed whether or not they should assassinate John Hume. And they'd gone to the, to the extent of decided that it would have to be a false flag operation, that they'd have to invent a loyalist group to do, to do it. They decided, however, that they couldn't do it uh, because Hume was too popular, and that was the genesis of the Hume-Adams discussions. So the the problem is that once you get a monster up and running, it's like a super tank, which is very difficult to stop and very difficult to turn around because there are a lot of hardliners who just wouldn't accept anything for the armed struggle. There was a time... Um, uh, I, I actually got... Uh, somebody gave me uh, an internal IRA paper, as you do, and uh, it was called Tuas. And there was ambiguity about whether this meant uh, totally unarmed struggle or tactical use of armed struggle. Now, um, most IRA people can write, so actually Tuas must be the tactical use of armed struggle. But the ambiguity about the title was important because... It allowed the hardliners to think, ah, oh, this is just a trick, this is just a ruse. And it allowed those who realised that the game was up, uh, that they were going to have to massage the movement in order to move it uh, towards what they wanted. But it was a very, very slow uh, process. I mean, at this point, you've previously talked about America and... Uh, so we're moving now from the 80s into the 90s. We have the fall of the Berlin Wall. And does the end of the Cold War sort of have an impact on this? And the answer is it, it wasn't important at first, but I think it became important because during the Cold War, uh, America wasn't going to make it a priority to put any pressure on the UK on Northern Ireland. At the end of the Cold War, that uh, assumption uh, was broken. And I remember that the, the Americans were going to be more involved. And uh, I started going to the American embassy and I saw their political um, uh, officer. And I was very worried that uh, the Americans would be green in more ways than one. I mean, green in being pro-nationalist, but but green and also being quite naive about it. But I remember sort of being really comforted by this bloke um, saying to me, look, you know, uh, we were talking about NORAID, which is a northern aid organisation that shipped arms and money uh, to the provisionals. He said, well, look, uh, maybe 10% of Americans have some sort of connection with Northern Ireland. Maybe an island. I mean, maybe... 10% sort of would call their kids Kieran, but they wouldn't know how to spell it properly. And maybe 10% of those 
would have a more a bigger attachment. Maybe ten percent of those would sort of fund more. So when you broke the numbers down, it was big, but it wasn't that big. I mean, what I've been very pleased about is, I mean, that then led to uh, very controversially at the time, uh, America giving Jerry Adams a visa, and. Being able to go to America and do the big fundraising has been very important for their war chest. I mean, they're, they're not necessarily for war anymore, but um, I think it also meant that they were under pressure as well. And and to be fair to the Americans, I mean, they have also, from the very beginning, uh, been very supportive of something that I think is absolutely critical and that's uh, integrated education because most schools are either Protestant or Catholic. Uh, that means that pupils and parents from both sides don't meet. Something like 7% of education is integrated, and I was very much a supporter of the integrated education movement. In fact, worked for them as their Westminster lobbyist for some years. And the American state and uh, the American consulate there and the American embassy here were and, and in Dublin were really absolutely in support of that because they, they, they recognized that this sort of uh, benign apartheid, as the latest Secretary of State for Labour, Paul Murphy, called this, was just very, very destructive. And what was also very interesting is that the way in which the Irish state changed. I mean, one of the results of the Good Friday Agreement was that uh, Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish Constitution, which essentially they claimed to Northern Ireland, were scrapped. This had long been a demand of uh, unionists. And, I mean, I, I used to go to Irish embassy parties who wouldn't want to go to a boozy party, I mean, twice a year. And there was a time when essentially the Irish embassy was very much uh, representative of the view that reunification was essential. And as time went by, I mean, I saw more and more that the ambassador would be taking a very different position and essentially saying that um, the important thing was to unify and stabilize Northern Ireland before anything else happened. And and now it's an open question um, because the recent census has revealed that there's been uh, a slight increase in the Catholic population, which is now slightly bigger than the Protestant population. But Jerry Adams, I mean, to quote him actually, uh, some years back uh, was asked about uh, whether or not Catholics outbreeding Protestants would lead to a united Ireland. And he said, well, it might for some be a very pleasant pastime but it's not the way to go. And I think he's right because Northern Ireland may or may not join a United Ireland, but it won't be that all Catholics will line up for it and all Protestants will not. And what the census also revealed is that there are quite a lot of people who see themselves as Northern Irish or British and Irish or British and Northern Irish. It's a lot more communicated. And I think that um, I, I, I've never been against the idea of a united island. I mean, I just wanted it done democratically. And I guess it was that crucial element of there needing to be 
peace and stability in Northern Ireland as the fundamental before any reunification or not, the current focus need to be on community cohesion and peace. And that seems to be now broadly accepted. But it reminds me of a, I have a quote from um, Cathal Goulding, who I mentioned earlier, who said, we, official IRA and the Workers' Party, were right too early, Adams was right too late, and Rory O'Brada was never fucking right. <laughs> Which I thought that's something you might appreciate. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. you you were... Do you think now, looking back, one, that you you were right and you have been proved right by history? And secondly, what is your view towards those who were within your circle on the British left who were hardliners or endorsed, maybe tacitly hardliners in the conflict? I know that... Um, Sean O'Callaghan said in quite strong terms that the likes of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell have blood on their hands because their support for the hardliners in the Republican movement back in the UK actually spurred on some of those hardliners in the IRA not to back down well until well into the mid-90s basically. Yeah, I mean, um, in Fortnite, I did a piece which looked at the arguments between the officials and the provisionals when they were interned at Long Cash, and there was only a curtain that divided them, so they could hear what uh, what the others were saying. And very controversially, it was reported, and I reported it, that Adam's view was that uh, they didn't want any of this working class unity, that he would wade up to his knees in Protestant blood for United Ireland. So they were absolutely determined on this. And and yet, um, it's also true, and Sean told me this as well, that they, the provisionals had illusions uh, that uh, people like Corbyn and Livingstone and MacDonald would be more powerful and that a Labour government would be persuaded for unity, as the euphemism put it, and that, therefore, there could be a united Ireland much more quickly. And, and and the irony of all of this is that when the option of that going, happening, had gone, and the provisional IRA essentially signed up to something they said they would never do, which was accept the legitimacy of Northern Ireland through the consent principle that Northern Ireland would determine its own destiny, that they would never go into a uh, Stormont. Well, now they're fighting to be top dog in Stormont. And, well, they are top dog. They, they, they won more votes, marginally, uh, than the Democratic Unionists. Um, and they would never decommission. Well, they did that. Well, they put arms beyond use. So the irony here is that at one point, um, Adams wanted uh, Blair to call off the hard left because they were actually making things difficult. And I think that what I learned from this is that there's a great danger in being radical about something that doesn't affect you and fighting to the last drop of someone else's blood for a romantic ideal that 
I mean, what I've learned is that if you if you look at diasporas, and I've now dealt with others as well, is that those who are away from uh, the center of action can afford to be more radical. And, th and they come with baggage that's frozen in time, and they're more bitter. But people on the ground, I mean, they have to live their lives, and they, they have to actually have arrangements, accommodations with their neighbors. And in the end, I mean, what I think happened is that exhaustion, external pressure, which came from the Labour Party as well, having dumped its uh, a priori support of a united Ireland in favour of being neutral. All of this allowed uh, the creation of the Good Friday Agreement. Now, the Good Friday Agreement, or Belfast Agreement, is um, it's not particularly a good deal in the sense that it's an unnatural thing to have an enforced coalition of parties without much of an opposition. I mean, a better model is that you have government, it comes and goes, it's refreshed, and you have an opposition which does that. Uh, and what you have now is you don't have a common program, you have uh, the different parties with their fiefdoms. Uh, when McGuinness, you know, when, when the, the Sinn Féin was going into power, they, they chose the two biggest spending departments because they can make a big difference to their people on the ground. But it's better than the, what it was before, but it, it would be better at some point if it moved to a more normal politics. Now, some people say that that's not possible, but this is far better, even though it's suspended and there's going to be an election. Uh, we speak before the election in probably December. But it's better than hundreds of people in the early 70s were being killed. And um, the numbers are, are not there. It is not perfect by any means. Um, but it's a question of time. It's, 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 so many people said to me during the troubles, you know, kick the whole thing into the long grass, put it on the long finger, as they say, and let time sort it out. I mean, the figure I mentioned before, Conchista Rossa, who was interned in the 56 to 64 campaign and uh, then became the leader of the Works Party, then the Democratic left, and then uh, he and others joined the Irish Labour Party and he was an MEP. He had a very good letter, I think, in the New Statesman saying the whole point of the Good Friday Agreement was that we didn't talk about United Ireland. Uh, we let that be sorted out. He reckoned maybe 50 to 100 years. There seems to be this idea that it might come sooner. I think that people ought to be careful what they wished for, not because I'm against it in principle, it's not for me to say anyway, um, but it's because I, I think there's... I'm not sure there's an appetite in the South, and that's a party to this. And I remember my friend, um, she always quoted the, the classic Dublin taxi driver, would you like a United Ireland? Yes, as long as it doesn't change anything down here. <laughs> and I, I think, that, you know, there is a big question mark about how a united Ireland could come into being. As I say, I'm not against it, but there are big practical questions, which is how does Ireland find the 10 billion needed to sustain Northern Ireland? I mean, Northern Ireland and Ireland had drifted apart before partition, uh, different models of development. And they've drifted apart over the last hundred years. And now Northern Ireland's problem is that it's 
I've got, got a, what a former sec- shadow secretary of state uh, called a Nuba Soviet economy. I mean, it's very public sector dominated. And the, the legacy of the troubles is a great deal more psychological and physical damage, which means that the cost of the public sector is higher. And there's not enough um, private enterprise or big companies. And economically, the makeup of the island of Ireland has flipped. Yeah. Well, I guess we all just, we can't look into a crystal ball and find out what will happen in the future. From from my personal perspective and chatting to you, I think I've, over the years, have learned so much about a conflict that briefly touched my parents' lives but never really touched mine. What has struck me in recent years is just how little people of my generation, but actually people older than me, really don't care too much about what happens in Northern Ireland. The current debates around the impact that Boris Johnson's deal could have. You know, people expressing concerns about stability in, in Northern Ireland with his deal putting a border down the Irish Sea, and the British public just shrug their shoulders at that. When Jeremy Corbyn becomes Labour leader, and a few individuals are trying to point out his association with Sinn Féin and the hardliners in the Republican movement, people shrug their shoulders at it. And he was very much able to rewrite history to say that actually he was in any way important to helping bring about peace. As someone who spent so much of their life campaigning for peace, do you find it frustrating how everyone seemingly today on mainland Britain simply shrugs their shoulders at the conflict and doesn't really pay attention and want to learn about this really important part of our collective Irish and British history. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, but it's also true that for so many years, I mean, Northern and Ireland were seen as the most boring words in the English language. And, uh, I mean, the problem was that uh, after partition, uh, the UK virtually neglected uh, Northern Ireland for 50 years. In fact, uh, I mean, I think there was... Um, uh, a civil servant who was in charge of Northern Ireland and I think the nationalised pubs in uh, Carlisle uh, and maybe some other uh, small thing. But it was neglected. We let it go to rot and uh, it exploded. The explosion was sorted, but then this uh, violent movement, the IRA, sort of had taken hold and it took a long time to stop and the consequences are still there. I mean, I think that uh, the Labour movement should pay more attention. Um, I mean, I, I sort of did engage with uh, Unionists and uh, Labour uh, Protestants and uh, the left, um, Protestant and Catholic, if you like. But that's rare. And I think we should really be aware that if if there were any attempt to essentially coerce, cajole, 
um, the Protestant working class or elements of the Protestant working class into the United Ireland, it's not going to end well. And uh, we have to be aware of their conditions. I used to work with Maid Blood, who sadly died, and who was a founder of the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition and a very big supporter of the integrated education movement, and then she was a Labour Lord. And, um, you know, she, she was brought up on the Shankill, and I, I remember her telling me about almost zero O-levels or A-levels. I mean, this is, a, you know, I... I went to Belfast, took my wife there, we walked up the Falls Road, the Shankill Road, and there's so much agony, and so many of the streets, oh yeah, wasn't that the bomb, and so on and so forth. And there has to be a massive effort to refound Northern Ireland. Now, a lot of it's happening. I mean, if you, I haven't been for a while, but I mean, some of the old areas, which were derelict, are now really quite good. And there's a lot going on, but there has to be a concerted effort to overcome those divisions uh, before anything else happens. And it should be a bigger part of what uh, Labour and, and why the public opinion thinks. Yeah, no, I, I can read. I mean, the other thing to say is that um, the work of the peace movement has also been neglected. Maybe that's our fault, but I'm very pleased that there'll be a witness seminar in Belfast next year, which myself and the ones I mentioned, Prochisa Rossa, for instance, are going to be talking about what British and Irish people did together uh, to um, say no to terrorism. It was a very important moment, and I think people have forgotten about it. And, you know, they ought to be reminded because people took risks, but also because that sort of thing can happen again. And, um, you know, people power, if you like, uh, had an impact and it can still have an impact. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stepping Out of Line podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, listen without the adverts and hear bonus episodes, sign up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line. That's www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line. If you want to find out more about Gary and what he's getting up to, you can check him out on Twitter at Gary Kent. That's at Gary Kent. And if you want to find out more about what Leia's up to, then make sure to check out his Twitter at Leo underscore FH. That's at Leo underscore FH. Thank you once again for listening to the podcast. I hope you listen to the next one.